Welcome to the Gateworld podcast. This is episode number 69 of the Gateworld podcast. I'm Darren. And I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. Tonight we're talking about Time. The newest episode of Stargate Universe aired last Friday on Sci-Fi. And dude, that was a cool episode. After the show, we're also going to do a short little special segment to talk about the new Battlestar Galactica movie, The Plan. If you're a BSG fan, stay tuned for that. There will be spoilers, but we'll save it for the very end of the show. David, how are you doing this week? I am well, sir. You? I am very well. I just finished watching Time for the second time, so I'm pretty jazzed to talk about it. Do we have any other business to get to first? We've had business the last couple of weeks. We have had business. There are a couple of interesting updates this week, especially if you're a Stargate Universe fan. Uh, there's news on Amanda Tapping coming back to the show before the season is out. And the first SGU novel, which is the novelization of Air, the series premiere, is out in bookstores now. So we've got all that news at Gateworld. The main discussion. So time is episode 8 of season 1, and... The last time we saw Rob Cooper in all his written and directed by glory, it was Vegas. In Vegas, the second to the last episode of Atlantis. And that story was really uh, outside the box. It was really cool. And I think everybody came out of it thinking, wow, Atlantis should have been doing this kind of stuff from season one. Mm-hmm. And uh, season one of Universe now, and Universe is doing this kind of stuff. This was an outside the box episode, and it was a really cool episode. This was the most visually spectacular episode of Universe yet. Jim Menard did himself proud, the DOP. Absolutely stunning film. Stage one, they turned stage one into essentially a swamp. Though the set is very confined, uh, I think it lended itself to um, the claustrophobia, being surrounded by all those plants. I must say that the directing in this episode the the camera work was the finest of the show yet it really really improved on everything that they've done you know i mean using the kino it was very cloverfield-esque in that regard they were using the kino to drive the plot and we were we've been waiting for an episode like this to happen you know where it was mostly kino or entirely kino it's sort of a gimme when you are doing sort of a, a gritty realistic on the ground show and then you come up with this device that is a flying camera ball. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it seem kind of obvious that somebody, one of the directors, is going to grab onto this thing and say, hey, let's do an episode that's mostly Kino? I think you're you're missing an opportunity if you don't. Yeah. It gave it a very Cloverfield feel, I think in a good way. The amount of it bothered me at first, because the episode opens with Kino Vision, the, the people come through to the planet, it's skipping around, there's little glitches in the video, and then it, it skips forward. Uh, a few minutes or hours to the next scene and mm. all the stuff that's going on in the planet all through the teaser is all in KinoVision and I'm thinking are we going to be watching KinoVision the entire episode? I don't know if I can take it. It's visually very cool. It's uh, It would be I think easy to to go too far and to overuse KinoVision but I mm-hmm. don't I don't think that Rob did that this, this episode. For a place that has so much rain uh, I think it's fun that uh, the, the, one of the bigger rain episodes of Stargate Universe took place inside the soundstage. It always is raining in Vancouver, and I wish that they would have more episodes that f- featured heavy rainfall because I think it's very interesting. I know it's hard to shoot in it, but it provides such an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that always disappointed me about Atlantis. We're seeing constant exteriors of Atlantis on the ocean. It would be raining there a lot. And Martin Garrow and I had this discussion once where he said, well, it rained in the storm of the eye. I'm like, Martin, that was the first season. <laughs> when <laughs> you episodes. have shots. Yeah, and he he commented that they would only put rain in there if it serviced the story. Well, if you're going to have an indoor Atlantis episode or scenes where it's inside Atlantis, go ahead and show that it's raining outside. We won't know. So I'm really tickled to see an episode where rain is, is heavily featured in some of the scenes. Added a lot of cool cool visuals. Uh, a lot of this happens at night. It happens in the rain. Stuff is wet. We've got the Kino night vision flipped on. We've got these creatures flying out of the jungle and we can't quite see them. The camera sort of gets a gets a bead on them for a couple of seconds. It's just really moody and creepy, and the rain adds a lot to that. Some of the creepy factor reminded me of Whispers from last year of Atlantis. Yeah, and I was reminded of uh, Doppelganger when the, the creature burrows out the back of, of Elise 
And that was also a, a Rob Cooper episode when uh, the Aratus bug burrows out from the inside of Taylor. Rob likes to use that alien mm-hmm. uh, bit there. Because it's one of the things that he says that scares him, yeah. Hey Darren and David, this is Camshaft from Bucharest, Romania, calling about the SGU episode time. As Samantha Carter would say, holy Hannah. So far, this is without a doubt my favorite episode of the series, very similar to my favorite Atlantis episode before I sleep. I loved how half the episode is shot from Kino perspective, and watching our guys die not once but twice was chilling. Hope you can clear something for me though. The entire episode showed us an alternate timeline, the Kino recording, and an alternate timeline. So are we assuming that the Kino Scott sent at the end was found by yet another version of our team and with the information they got they managed to make sure nobody got killed? Anyway, as I've said, awesome episode overall and just to wrap up, loving the new show, loving your podcast and keep up the good job guys. I must say, having having said all these things, for me, the timeline elements of it were predictable. Really? I think so. I had it figured out very quickly. Oh, uh, good for you. I didn't. No, it's it's not good for me. I wanted to be surprised, and I wasn't. As soon as we find out that, that people start dying and that the, the, it's the whole problem of them getting sick is from bacteria in the water, all you have to do is send an updated Kino through the Stargate when the solar flare starts fluctuating it and put at the very beginning of the message, do this, do this, and do this. Otherwise, people are going to start to get sick. Done. And that's what they did. And I was very disappointed about that. Yeah, so you're talking about the final resolution after they figure out that the wormhole is sending the Kino back in time. That's really yeah. late in the episode. The stuff with the creatures holding the solution... And, you know, the destiny likely picking that planet for that specific reason because it had, I don't know, the DNA of the creatures on file. I did not, I did not see that coming. And that, that you, was really cool. Did you think that was the case? The, the I think that, that was the case. knew that the creature's venom could solve this disease that nobody had, had gotten yet? It's the only reason that they went to that planet. Destiny always puts them at a planet for a reason. Hi, this is William calling from Baltimore, Maryland. Time got me thinking. I know that uh, the destiny is on autopilot. I remember in the episode Water, the ship opened the gate at uh, a plant that will provide water for all the crew members. Now the ship opened the gates on the planet that will mysteriously provide them to the antidote uh, for the disease that was in the water. The ship is more intelligent than it appears to be. The convenience of all the members of the destiny. I mean, they came to that planet when uh, a solar flare occurs. So that got me thinking, maybe the ship knew that and it came to that planet to the right moment where they can find the cure. And if they failed, they can begin again just by going through the gate while uh, the solar flare occurs. You have to think about it. So I didn't see that coming, but in terms of all of all the looping, I had that all figured out. You know, I would be disappointed if the Destiny continued to do that. If it was really so smart that it had, you know, sensors in the water tanks or something that could detect the microorganism but not alert the crew and and went and found this planet for that reason. If I mean, if we've got this constantly omniscient, omnipotent destiny. Yeah, predestination destiny. Then basically every time it drops out of FTL and dials a planet we say, well, the destiny brought us here for something that's really, really important so we have to go to the planet and figure out what it is. And we'll of course figure it out because he knows exactly how many minutes it takes for us to figure it out. And it it picks a place where there's a solar flare, so if we screw things up we can send the... (laughs) Gives us roughly enough time to accomplish the mission that we don't know that we're on. I don't think that's what's going on in the show, and I would be disappointed if that if that was the case. It would, that would be you know that would be turning destiny into into Deus ex machina. Basically, the destiny knows your needs before you have them. Well, she kind of already has done that. A few You're just times, meeting yeah. on, on an ongoing basis. I mean, like every single week, every time it drops out of FTL and dials a planet, it's because we have a need that it knows about. I mean, that, that, then there's no exploration at all. You have to ask yourself, is it sending us there because it thinks that we're going to find the place interesting, or is it sending us there because it knows that we need something there? Or is it sending us there either or? I have two points about that that uh, that, that brings up. One is what we've talked about in the past. What is the Destiny's actual mission? If nobody was on board, would it be in FTL all the time, and it would never drop out? What was its original mission? And the second point is, man, these planets... 
that the Cedar ships put Stargates on? These are crappy planets. There's death and destruction everywhere. I, for one, didn't see the solar flare explanation coming, although it makes sense. Every time we've seen time travel in Stargate before, it's been because of a solar flare, I think. So uh, it makes sense that that's, that's what's causing it. The episode is very internally consistent. Yes. Yes, very tight. So you can examine it from any direction, and it still tracks. I thought what was very interesting was Rush's comment, you know, about, you know, something like most of the time when a solar flare is between a wormhole, the wormhole bends back on itself, creates the time distortion, and sends you back to the original planet. Uh, I think that's that most of the time, or however he worded it, because obviously in The Last Man, Shepard wasn't sent back to the forested world where he started from. He was sent into the future to Atlantis, which was not the same planet that he was starting from. And that's a huge discrepancy in how the time looping has worked. So I think what they're saying is, is that sometimes you end up on the planet that you were Depends on the solar flare. intending to go to. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a wrinkle, but at least they acknowledge it. Yeah, I think that was a nice distinction that was made in the episode, and I definitely want to nerd that up a bit more when we get to quibbles. There was a lot of character development in this one. We find out that uh, Marianne Wallace has HIV. I was not expecting Yeah, Eli's mom. And that her husband left because he couldn't handle that. All when Eli was uh, all like 10 or 11 years ago. Hard stuff, you know, but at the same time, at the end of the episode, we think that, you know, even though we're aware of this knowledge... We think that the characters did not sit in the Kino room with Eli and watch all this stuff, so they're not aware of it. But something that was just recently released on the web suggests that both Kinos were sent from the end of the episode, and so they may all be aware of it again. This is an interesting question. Okay, we have three timelines going on here. Well, we have two timelines in the episode, but three ultimately. Th- a third implied timeline, yeah. So the first one is what we watch in all the Kino vision, the first trip to the planet. Everybody gets sick, the attack of the bugs. The second timeline mostly takes place on the ship. It's everybody watching that video, and then at the end they decide to go through. They get ambushed. They die again. Everybody dies again, and then Scott sends the second Kino through, or the Kino through the second time, however you want Scott to think of it. Scott has a very bad week. Yeah, he does, and the th- he loses his girlfriend, too. Hey, I'm David Guide from Richmond, Virginia. I have quite literally just finished watching the uh, the episode... In my opinion, it was awesome. The one of the writers definitely ended to where you have to uh, connect the dots and assume they're going to be okay. Definitely a, I'm not going to say improved writing style, but different uh, writing style. And uh, so the third implied timeline would be what takes place after the episode where they find... Here's, here's an interesting question. Do they find one Kino or do they find two Kinos? The end of the episode suggested that Scott sent the newer Kino through. In the uh, Kino video, Kino 18... Yeah, these are the, these are the webisodes that are, are produced along with the show. It is the follow-up to time, and Scott is holding on to both Kinos. The original Kino, and then the modified Kino. So that first Kino has got to be really, really old now. Yeah, I don't think it doubles its age, because Scott didn't, didn't have the old one in his backpack, and he threw them both through. I think we're meant to, to see that the timelines are basically stacking up on top of each other. So there's the original one that went back that's still there, and then the second one went back and aged along with it. So there's two Kinos from two different time periods. There's a couple of interesting things that I've seen online that I want to dispel. This is okay. interesting to me. I don't know if anybody else is going to find this interesting. Uh, the first is was from a reviewer who actually didn't know that this was the end of the story. It was uh, somebody who thought that, oh, we'll tune in next week and find out what happens to them if they can get out of this. I think it was a really bold choice of Rob Cooper to actually end the episode this way. Yeah, I was pretty shocked. And you know that they're going to fix it. You know that ultimately, somehow, they're going to fix it, because if not, then a number of the key players die, and that's unacceptable. So you might as well not show it. And since we're doing the whole Kino video thing, might as well save one for a Kino video. Yeah, I think that this is the brilliance of the episode, and it's it's uh, made a little bit explicit by the reference to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. That film ends sort of with the same pregnant ending, where you don't see the heroes die, but you basically are left to figure out that there's no way that they could have survived. Here it's kind of the opposite. You're left with this horrible, awful final moment from Scott recording on the Kino. But you know that the reset button's coming. This this is 
episodic television. Mm -hmm. The regulars are coming back next week. We're using time travel. It's a reset button. Star Trek does it. Stargate's done it a few times. Everybody does reset button episodes in sci-fi. What's brilliant that Rob did here is you do a reset and don't show it. We don't need to see another 10 minutes of the third iteration of the crew finds two Kinos, watches Mm -hmm. them, goes to the planet during the day, finds the bugs, develops an antidote, and pats each other on the back and says, thank goodness for our our other selves, we were saved. We don't need to see that. And we saw it in this keynote video, and in some respects, I think that it's a good thing that it was saved for outside of the episode, because it kind of dumbed it down. It did dumb it down, and I wish that, as much as I like the answers that that keynote video provides, I wish that it didn't exist, because the ending of the episode is such a cool punch in the face that it kind of ruins the ending a little bit, to have that explanation. The second one was the suggestion that uh, our characters are stuck in a time loop, and they're repeating the same events over and over again, like, like Next Generation's cause and effect. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think about that idea? You know, that occurred to me after I saw that. Uh, for a, a moment, I flicked it in my head. What if they're eternally stuck? I mean, do I think if that's do I think that that's actually happening, or do I think that that's interesting? Do you think first that that's actually happening? No, no. There's a there's enough of an out. It'd be one thing if they immediately started dying in this episode. You know, there is a there is a gap of time where there are several hours that they can take advantage of, and that is their out. Yeah, I think the the reason why they're not repeating the same thing over and over again is every time the Kino goes back, they get a different set of information. Mm-hmm. So the first time they did this, they didn't have a Kino, they had no information. The second time, they had a, a day and a half worth of footage, basically, to watch. So they couldn't get through fast enough. Then Scott figures out, let's put the message at the very beginning, give them everything they need to know to solve it immediately, and not burn off all that time. But the interesting thing is, I think it could potentially set up an infinite loop because we learn this information uh, in the second timeline and then send our people through and they all get killed Mm -hmm. and then Scott sends the the Kino through again so basically in order to prevent this from becoming a loop I think that the next attempt to go and capture one of the creatures obviously has to go better it has to have a better ending well that's why they happen during the day I mean and Scott makes that comment in the video why do we went during the day yeah, and rewatching it, I was I was looking for that, and he he explicitly says at the end into the keynote recording, they're nocturnal, so if you go during the day, their nest is not far from the gate. Uh, that's exactly what he needed to record, because if he mm-hmm. didn't record that, then it would yeah, be, who knows what would have happened. It would be difficult for for uh, a team if they if they went during the night again. It would be difficult to ever break the loop. He gives them all the information that they exactly need to uh, to survive the, the second attempt. Yeah. Third attempt. <laughs> yeah, so that dialogue, what he recorded there, and then right before they go through the gate at the end, Rush's dialogue where he's explaining solar flares and what's happened. I mean, the script is just really tight. Everything yeah. is in there exactly as it needs to be, and there's no yeah. extraneous dialogue. And in the meantime, we're treated to... Uh some backstory about Eli, and we learn more about TJ. It's Joel from Houston calling in about this week's episode, Time, and I'm very excited about this episode. I must say it is probably my favorite episode of Stargate Universe so far. It told a classic Stargate and classic sci-fi style story with the time travel elements of the show, which I thought was very well done. It finally had some legitimate action as we finally got to see them shoot at something with these strange alien creatures, and it also still included that great character development we've been coming to expect, or I've been coming to expect anyway, from the universe, with several characters getting more development. The actual reason I really wanted to call in, though, was due to the development I saw with Rush, and specifically the scene between him and Eli discussing coming to terms with mortality and whether there is something on the other side of death. And it's in this scene that it really started for me to piece together possibly why Rush is on the destiny. I think, and this is my theory, based on what we saw in that scene, is Rush came to terms with his own mortality and the fact that he's going to die through the death of this woman that he cares about that we saw the picture of earlier in the season. 
in that rush came to destiny, hoping that he could learn to use his own intellect and learn something there in order to figure out how to ascend, and that was how he was going to overcome his own mortality. And that is my theory as to why Rush is on the destiny and what his agenda is, and I think that that played out very subtly in this episode, and I really appreciate that, and I really enjoyed this episode. I think we get our first inkling as to what Rush's ultimate agenda is. In this we episode, do. let's talk about the others first. So we learn about Eli and his mom and why she's sick and where dad went. Um, TJ has a sister with a couple of kids. TJ has a sister with a couple of kids that she misses a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and her father was a tailor. How interesting was that? Yeah. Taught her how to stitch. That's a nice subtle little beat. And the other character beat that I really loved that I, uh, when I was watching the episode the second time, I said, if this was SG-1 or Atlantis, I guarantee you this would be the very first scene that would be cut Absolutely. because the episode was running over. And that scene is after Vanessa and Chloe's death. TJ goes out into the corridor and collapses and starts weeping. And, and Dr. Park comes up behind her and tries to comfort her. That scene's gone in, in one of the former shows. So now Rush. We get a little bit of a teaser as to maybe what his ultimate agenda is. Maybe. He's talking about ascension. I think he's gone to rather a lot of trouble to figure out ascension. I mean, he would have had to have gone as far as Kev, as far as I'm concerned. But I don't know if he's trying to figure out how to ascend. I think I'd be a little disappointed if that was really the only thing. I think, personally, that he's trying to somehow resurrect his wife. Really? You think that... That is my opinion. I think he's figured out somehow that she's dead and that the destiny can somehow reconstitute her. Or that that he's found something in the universe that can do that, like the edge of the universe or whatever, he can find a way to cheat death. A bit of a Malachi thing going on there. That's what I think. That's interesting theory. I've got another theory, which is, I looked at the transcript that uh, Callie did for Gateworld. You can find it on the site. And the the dialogue says, uh, Rush and Eli are talking, and he says, of course the ancients evolved to a point where they're physical, he's explaining what ascension is. Uh, he, He tells Eli that he knows it's possible, and then he pauses and says, maybe not for you and me, but that idea, it's the reason why I ended up here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, maybe not for you and me. I don't think he's seeking ascension for himself. I don't know about resurrecting his, his dead wife, but uh, it makes me wonder if maybe she is either still alive right now and is in a coma in a hospital mm-hmm. somewhere, and he's trying to figure out ascension so that he can bring it back and save mm-hmm. her. Or mm-hmm. more likely what I think is going on is... Two years ago, he originally joined the program for that purpose, to try and find a way to save her, and she since died. He was not able mm. to find it quick enough. So it's the reason why he's here, as in he was part of the Icarus Project because of that, but it's not what he's looking for right now, necessarily. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, enough of it, yeah. Hey guys, it's Matt from Peoria, Illinois. I thought the episode was really good. After watching the first Kino's videos, Young and Scott and Greer and the other guy who went to the planet after they figured out it went back in time. You know, they're being kind of ignorant because they've watched video of themselves already being eaten alive in like three seconds. And, you know, you'd think they would, you know, wear the ancient spacesuits to protect themselves. But, you know, they don't. But it's part of the, it's part of the episode that and Kino at the end. I'd like to play devil's advocate for a minute uh, for some of the comments that I've read online. Do it, Beelzebub. I read this a few weeks ago, and it struck me as I was watching TJ collapse and cry. I like it. I think that it's dramatic. I think that it's a chance to show off good acting. I mean, the, the ability to cry on command, I mean, that's acting. And if it pulls at your heartstrings, and it sure did mine, then it's it's effective. But... I know some people will suggest that people like Scott tumbling down and crying and screaming when his when he sees all of his teammates dead mm-hmm. and TJ taking a moment to go outside and crumble down and cry, that these people are very emotionally immature mm-hmm. and not fortified for these types of problems, that they definitely should not be in this situation that they're in because they c- clearly cannot compose themselves. That's interesting. What do you think about that? In terms of realism, yeah, I mean, people wouldn't be crying so much at the drop of a hat, but this is television, and, you know, they're trying to make us feel for these characters, and it's working on me. 
But for a lot of other people, I mean, especially people like my father, you know, who served in the armed forces, he's looking at this and he's saying, geez, this is, this is ridiculous. People need to be more composed than this. They need to be stronger than this. Yeah, and it's a tough line to walk because it is, it is television drama, but it's television drama that's trying to be realistic. That's, that's a tough tightrope to walk when it comes to emotion. Um, I thought at the end of the episode when Scott heard over the radio that Chloe had died... I thought that that he was a little bit too too uh, weak there. I mean, he didn't break down and cry there, but the fact that Young had to shake him so much. Yeah, repeated uh, his name several times. Yeah, I thought that that was that was a little bit too uh, tender of a moment when when he was on a mission to save everybody's life. But what do you think about the fact that Rush did that? I mean, in water, he's basically telling Eli the away team doesn't need to know all the information because it's just going to distract them. Then here, he decides to tell them these four people just died. It's inconsistent with the character, I think. But I think Rush also has some great moments in the episode, too. I mean, for the moment there, I thought we were going to make it was fantastic. Uh, the preview that we showed showed the, the last minute or so of the teaser and it ends with Rush clamping down over the Kino in frustration. That was funny stuff. I watched that several times and just laughed. Yeah, the Butch Cassidy line delivery, yeah, standing in the rain looking into the Kino and then running through the gate. That's, that's probably one of my favorite Rush moments of the series so far. The visual effects were stand-up once again. The creatures, I wonder if some of them were done practically. The ones where, where they're half inside of people, I wonder if they're holding onto it with one hand while the tail is swinging with the other. Because there's a lot in the background going on, too. There's a lot of death in this one, and some of it was pretty dang gory. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty gory. For my standards. <laughs> the creatures were pretty cool. They reminded yes. me almost of giant overgrown Gould. The yeah. wiggly tail and the four big the, the pointy claw mouth. When we saw the teaser of, of the of the creature flying through the air and embedding itself in Chloe, I was hoping to find out that there was a Gould connection there. The creatures were Gould cousins. I would have been fine with that, but they're a brand new species. And once again, there is life out there in other galaxies, and yeah. it's it's uh, really creepy and yeah. not very nice. And I don't know why the ancients put a Stargate on this planet. To provide an antidote for the bacteria that exists on the ice planet. <laughs> There's a lot going on in time. Uh, it's visually jarring at first, but it is stunning. I wasn't sure what to make of it the first time. I really came in with high expectations. I love time travel. I wanted a cool sci-fi premise. I love what Rob Cooper has done in the past with those episodes that he's both written and directed. So I came in with high expectations, and I was a little bit thrown for a loop by some of the what seemed to be excessive use of Kino at the beginning. Hi, this is Avi from Chicago calling in about the most recent episode. Good thing was that it was moving; it was a little more action, a little more um, you know activity going on. It wasn't, and it was more of a the ensemble cast did something, and there was also less rush. On the other hand, the plot device that we saw of using the solar flares was, I mean, it's been used before. It, grant, granted, it gets us into the solid um, Stargate genre that we've seen in 1969 in Continuum and Atlantis, but it's been used. It's, you know, and how much can you use one single plot device at the Solar Flare going back in time? On the other hand, it did make for good television, or maybe a little too much use of KinoVision. Um, and then the only bad, really bad thing was I understand the first Kino, that makes sense, but when they go to the planet and then they get attacked and they all die, and then Scott decides to send the second Kino through with another message in the past, it kind of loses its you know, feel for all the character development we saw in the episode, and then all that character development just goes away because it doesn't exist because when he sends the second Kino through and says, get the bug or whatever it is and then you'll be off scot-free. The second time I watched it, knew what to expect, knew what was going on, knew that I wasn't going to watch an hour's worth of Kino footage. Because that does get old for me. That does bother me at, at a point. I don't think it's too much in this episode. But um, watching it again, i got to say, this is a masterpiece of an episode. In the writing and the acting and the visuals and the directing, this is a piece of art. Much more yeah. so even than Vegas, I think. This is the best episode of Stargate Universe to date. It shows that you don't need big, flashy visual effects and desert locations to make a good show. 
like Brad is fond of saying, you know, he can put two people in a room and let them talk, and that that enables Rob to go spend some money and blow stuff up. They create a, a relatively small set here. They soak it with rain. They do a little Destiny footage in between. It is a tight show. Well-written, well-directed. The cinematography is fantastic. The visual effects are excellent. It is completely believable. But again, except for the creature's being the antidote for me it was completely predictable that's interesting i didn't find it predictable at all what's up gate world john calling about the episode time and let me just say if earth was my least favorite episode then time was by far my total most favorite episode of this entire series the use of the keynote to tell the story was just epic and honestly i was more scared by this episode then I was scared of the movie Alien, and I don't know, maybe that's just how I am, but yeah, it was amazing episode, like best ever. And I don't think I've ever had a chance to express how much I love this podcast. You guys do a great job. I think that at the end of the day, this episode is a great example of what I was hoping Stargate Universe was going to be right out of the gate, and it took a while to get here. And so I really hope that this episode is the new rule and not the exception. I hope that this is the first sign of, of the show really sort of figuring out its storytelling and that we don't have to wait for the next Rob Cooper joint to get one that's this cool. Hi guys, this is Thomas from Ontario. I'm just calling about the latest episode, Target Universe episode, Time, and all I have to say is that's the kind of ending you'd expect from the show like 24. It's the kind of ending where you're on the edge of your seat yelling at the TV screaming, why the heck do they have to end it now? Because you want just to know that much more about what's going to happen next. This does not feel like Stargate. This feels like a crazy adrenaline-fueled thrill ride. I can't believe Brad Wright and Robert Cooper never did this before. Why the heck didn't they? It's got character drama, and it's got... Uh, we learn more about, about people. We see them in extreme circumstances and how they react. We see their emotions. We see their relationships with one another. All that stuff that we wanted, but there's a plot, too. They go out and proactively do something. They don't just let things happen to them. They're, in some sense, responsible for their own success at the end of the episode. So there's adventure in this episode, and there's a cool sci-fi element. Um, the Stargate is involved heavily in this episode. Uh, I just liked it all the way around. It's time for quibbles. My first quibble is a minor one, which is we didn't boil our emergency alien water well enough. I think that guy should be fired. I think it was probably Private Becker, the cook. We probably took all that melted all this ice, we probably brought it into the mess and got out all the pots and pans and put it on the stove and boiled oh, it. Let's see. And then eventually Colonel Young and TJ go in the other room and say, Okay, Becker, finish boiling all this for us. And he just slacked off and I think he should be fired. The bad boiler, Darren Becker. <laughs> <laughs> it's all your fault. You know, all these time travel episodes that we've done where the solar flare has looped time, it has never affected the puddle before. There's never been a visual indication. Oh, yeah, with that visual recognition of the puddles sort of... Throughout the episode, I'm saying to myself, you know, this puddle distortion is really interesting. This is a brand new Stargate problem. No, it's not. It's an old Stargate problem with an enhancement. With a new manifestation. And if that was the case, then all of the puddles should be acting strangely. I think it's a little contrived as soon as their solar flare starts interrupting the event horizon starts having issues and that makes sense on the receiving end but not on the outgoing end yeah it makes sense that there would be a visual cue that something was going hinky with the wormhole it seemed familiar though maybe it wasn't in a solar flare time travel episode but haven't we seen a visual effect like that where the when there's power fluctuations yes i'm really interested in the solar flare time travel stuff obviously we talked up a storm about this when we did our Continuum podcast last year, and we even did a time travel special episode of the podcast, which we can link to in the show notes on the website. So we know from, from what we've seen in the past of Stargate, and from what Rush says, that, that sometimes a solar flare will leave the wormhole connected to its destination gate, but just send you forward or backward in time. Sometimes it'll loop you back around to the sending gate in the past or the future which is what we saw uh, with SG-1 in 1969. 
uh, when we sent the note back in time in 2010. So my question is, in this episode, the Stargate is connected to the Destiny first, before the solar flare hits. We see an incoming wormhole, and Rush tries to radio Young and can't get him at the end of the episode. And Lieutenant Scott waits for the, the puddle effect to start so that he knows the wormhole is now being affected by the solar flare. So here's my question. It seems to be up to the solar flare whether or not it curves the wormhole back on itself or not. Some solar flares do, some solar flares don't. What if the solar flare affecting us in this episode didn't loop the wormhole back and it stayed connected to the Destiny in the past or the future. We have the problem of the Stargate on the Destiny is moving from galaxy to galaxy, and a year ago, or 500 years ago, it was not in range. Mm-hmm. So if that was the kind of solar flare that was going on, what would happen to the wormhole? It doesn't seem possible that it could stay connected to the Destiny. Yeah, the, the solar flares, whether or not they send you to the destination gate or loop you back around, giving the solar flares that flexibility now is, is frustrating. Yeah, my instinct is to make it internally consistent. Maybe it was because the Destiny was not in range, however many years ago it was. It was obviously far enough into the past that Rush's body was able to decompose. I think that that was his own skull that he that he picked up. That he up. picked up, I agree. So maybe the fact that the Destiny was not in range all those years ago gave the wormhole only one option. Return to sender. Return to sender. Listener mail. Hi, Darren and David. This is depleted ZPM from California checking in. After watching time, I have to once more admire the SGU creator's ability to pitch open-ended situations in the closing moments of an episode. We see Lieutenant Scott attempting to send the Kino back through time, but we don't actually know whether the team succeeds the next time through or whether it takes many more times. It's even possible that the creature's venom is a false lead and it could take many, many iterations to get on the right track. We, the viewers, won't know any better unless someone happens to tell us in a future episode. I want to also revisit the question of security protocols on Destiny. Watching Earth, I was dismayed to see Telford's people firing the weapons. In a well-ordered security hierarchy, it would make better sense for access to the helm and navigation controls be prerequisites to access to more powerful or dangerous areas like the weapons. That's just good sense. We primitives on Earth have had privilege rings since at least the 20th century, if not earlier. Regarding the methods of access control, even though destiny predates the use of the ATA gene, Remember that the ancients like Merlin and Janus were fond of using puzzles or riddles to protect their most sensitive technology and secrets. I would really love the key to full access to destiny systems be based on some cultural knowledge of the ancients rather than merely a glorified IQ test. And who better to unravel an ancient cultural conundrum than Dr. Daniel Jackson? Hello, my name is Evan from Clarence, New York, and this is the first time I'm calling in. I would like to make a comment on the episode Time and then jump back to the episode Earth for a second. In my opinion, Time was the first episode where the team had to figure out a problem for themselves. Granted, it took several time loops, but they didn't get lucky like in other episodes. One thing that I found humorous was Eli trying to wield an M16 with a Kino taped to his head. The scene where Eli was saying goodbye to Chloe and admitting his feelings for her was beautiful. You could see the pain in his eyes, which is just a credit to David Blue. You could almost tell that Chloe was going to die just by watching TJ slowly break down in the background. The visual effects in the episode were excellent. They weren't obnoxiously obvious. They were subtle little details that added so much more to the episode. Now, if I may jump back to Earth for a moment, the scene where Eli was talking to his mother was amazing. I thought it was one of the best examples of writing so far in the series. There's a certain level of awkwardness, which is what you would expect from Eli, but you get a sense that she was getting an idea that it may have been her son. She seemed like a wonderfully kind woman whose only concern is for Eli. The scene also lets Eli know what she thinks of him, which he brings up to TJ in the episode Time, while they are discussing their families back home. I would just like to say that this is by far the best episode. The series keeps getting better and better, and it seems like it's starting to get up on its feet as its own show. Well, that's all we have this week on Time. If you want to see GateWorld's full coverage, head over to the site. That's GateWorld.net. You can find photos and screen captures and a transcript and an episode review and more goodies from this week's episode, Time. So, David, what's coming up this Friday on Sci-Fi? Life will be airing this Friday on Sci-Fi. That will be our November 25th show. 
So, of course, call in and tell us what you think of this week's new episode of Stargate Universe. Then on December 2nd, we will be talking about sex, baby, on SGU. Sex with communication stones. Aw, yeah. You know, uh, not just with communication stones, but, you know, the whole element of it on the show. Of course, I talked with Tammy, and she's frustrated that only guys are going to be discussing this one. So there's no new episode of Stargate Universe airing a week from Friday because it's the Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S. So we'll have that sexual discussion. And then there's one more episode. There's one more episode of SGU before the midseason break. That's Justice. And we'll talk about that in our December 9th show. And then one more show after that for the year. And we will take a Christmas holiday. So thanks for joining us this week. Yes, thank you. Be advised, we have a new telephone number. A new phone number? Yes. For the Gate World Podcast Hotline? That's right. If you call in the old one, you will get the new one. But it will not forward you automatically. So the new number is area code 951-262- 1647. 951-262-1647. Long distance rates apply. And if you live outside the U.S. and don't want to call a U.S.-based number, you can use uh, Skype. They'll charge you about two cents a minute if you plunk in a few dollars. Otherwise, you can record yourself on your computer and email us the WAV or MP3 file to webmaster at gateworld.net. Do try and keep those recordings on the short side uh, a minute to two minutes max, I think, is about a good length. And as always, check out the podcast feedback thread for more on what your fellow listeners are thinking. That's all for Stargate. Stay tuned if you want to hear us talk about Battlestar Galactica, the plan. From GateWorld, this is Darren. This is David. And we'll see you back here next week on the podcast. By your command. My brand new slipper has a hole in it. Phillips wanted us to talk about Battlestar Galactica, the plan. So we are going to talk about it. The show ended with Daybreak, uh, whenever whenever that was. When was that? Earlier spring. this year, spring. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the end of the story, but apparently there's another story to be told. It's the same story of the four years of Battlestar from the point of view of the Cylons. Or more First particularly... First two years, okay. From one Cylon in particular, this is kind of Cavill's story. Yeah, who is the genuine bad guy on the show? You know, there, there, there was going to be an ultimate bad guy at some point. You couldn't have all your characters be gray. They had to introduce someone at some point who was genuinely, totally evil, and that was Cavill. Yeah, and there's multiple versions of Cavill going on here. Mm-hmm. So throughout, we have the Cavill who was on Caprica, I think. Wasn't mm-hmm. he the one who ori- who? eventually went to Galactica. Yes. So he's Brother Cavill. He's a priest on board Galactica for the first couple years of the series and then gets found out. Yeah. And then the other Cavill is... There's another Cavill on on Caprica as well. Who stays on Caprica with the Rebels. And he's sort of the home base Cylon leader. And he begins to question whether or not what they did was correct. An interesting movie, I think, because Dean Stockwell's a great actor, and he can definitely carry this. But you've got these Cavils, two different guys from the same line, who are learning different things, having different experiences, and sort of going off in a different direction. And the the movie culminates with this, this conversation between the two guys before they get spaced. Mm. It's, <laughs> was this the right thing to do? Did we Should we have gone left when we went right? The big irritant, is it just pour salt into the wound regarding, and they have a plan? They admit in this movie there is no plan. And if there was a true mastermind, holy cow, I didn't think of that plan, I yeah. think it would have been much more satisfying. But all they do is point out that there wasn't one. I, and I felt shortchanged by that all throughout the series. They have a plan. They have a plan. That's that's how the opening sequence ends every single week. Up until, when was it, mid-season three maybe? Or yeah. was it the beginning of season four? That was gone when yeah. when it, it was it became about the final five. The plan was gone. Basically saying, I guess we don't have one. <laughs> but 
Let's stop yeah. it. So there are some brilliant science fiction shows. There are some brilliant showrunners and writers and storytellers out there. Uh, I consider Joe Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5, to be a genius because he had a plan. He started with a five-year arc with a beginning, a middle, and an end and told the story. And I hoped that that's what Battlestar was when I was watching it. I hoped that, that Ron Moore was giving us one of those. Mm-hmm. And towards the end, I became really suspicious that he was just making it up and there was no plan. And so if there's no plan, why do you say every single week, hey, we have a plan? He says he'll never forgive David Icke for that. You know, oh, was that it, David Icke who stuck that on there? It was David Icke who stuck that on there, yeah. On, on the special features for the complete series, Ron says that he will never forgive David for that. They'd make fun of it repeatedly in that segment, too. So just more salt in the wound as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the show is remarkably internally consistent when you realize that the writers did not have a plan, largely. The movie's largely a clip show. They connect a lot of the dots and make some of it really fun. For, like, the moments just before water starts, we see that Cavill was with Boomer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, we, we find out that an Ithacan elephant figurine of hers that was introduced and downloaded is what turns her off and on. Uh, and that this duality was going on within her the entire time, you know. I thought it was interesting that she was the, run, the one who suspected that she wrote Cylon on her door. And the visual effects are fantastic. I think one of the things that, that surprised me and startled me about the opening is that they go to the trouble to show us charred corpses in this version. We always had to just imagine that there were, that there were remains of humans everywhere. But in this one, we see the carnage. We, we see that people were dead, a huge heap of bodies in, in one of the scenes as well. It's really creepy. Yeah, the Boomer stuff I really appreciated. I appreciated some of the dot connecting when you get down to the minutia. Boomer was a double agent, so what was turning her on and off? Um, that stuff is, is interesting. And she's, she's taking orders from a Cylon who is physically there on Galactica with her. Brother Cavill kind of came out of nowhere when he was first introduced, so I like the fact that now we know he's basically the leader of the Cylons there. He's sort of this, this quiet agent. But um, there's also an entirely brand new storyline that's introduced with Rick Worthy's character. Yes, who I thought was the one Cylon who didn't get nearly enough showcase. Simon. Rick Worthy has been one of my favorite actors for a very long time, and I was thrilled when he became a Cylon. And I felt so shortchanged when the series ended because he only had a few lines of dialogue after that season two introduction. Yeah, he never did a whole lot other than the farm where he was introduced uh, uh, with the episode with Kara Mm -hmm. in uh, early season two on Caprica. And here he's got an entire storyline. He's apparently uh, fallen in love and gotten married, and now he's ordered to become a suicide bomber and doesn't mm-hmm. want to do it. That was a touching story. There's there's not really much of any connection to the larger fabric of Battlestar there. Uh, it's interesting to know that there was a Simon model in the fleet. Part of the storyline that's going on there is Cavill's having this conversation with one of the sixes, and maybe you can tell me if we've seen her before. Uh, the, and the slutty six, the slutty six, and oh, basically saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got all these these agents, and I'm telling them to do all these things, and they're everything is falling apart. You know, Cavill has a plan to wreak havoc on humanity, and his plan is falling apart because people can't follow his orders, and and Boomer shoots Adama twice in the chest and doesn't manage to kill him. And who's the gut? I don't know why they keep saying the chest. Yeah, and the return of Edward James Almos's wife, who is half his age in real life. Man, pretty looking thing, let me tell you. And, Who's that? Uh, what's her face? Think the Lords of Corbel, uh, who becomes a deckhand. Oh, his real life wife? That's his real life wife. I had no idea. Uh huh. Yeah, she's 32 and he's 64. Very adult. They really. And I was, I was expecting Six to finally take off her clothes. In this one, I was expecting, you know, they've teased us for years and years and years that she's this a super sexual Cylon. I figured that they would cap the series off by showing us her naked. Yeah. Uh, that didn't happen. It doesn't surprise me that, that Trisha did not do that, even though she she uh, had a, I think, she has I think it was to. Playboy. Yeah. Pictorial. But yeah, it didn't surprise me that she, she wouldn't do that on screen. I don't know if they asked her, obviously. But um, there's a lot of boobalage. I read reviews of this ahead of time, so I knew what to expect. Uh, I read things that, uh, you know, there was full frontal, both male and female. I like Dean Stockwell a lot. And Mm -hmm. Cavill Cavill has some really interesting stuff to do in this. The stuff with the little kid and finally killing the little kid is interesting. Oh, man. Uh, Magellan. 
yeah, just disturbing. Interesting in that it's so so off-putting. One of my greatest disappointments in the in the regular series and the way that it ended in Daybreak is Cavill is so much about winning, about destroying humanity, about resurrecting and being immortal, and at the end of the show he wants to get resurrection back after it's been taken away from him. At the end of the series he puts a gun to his head and says, oh frack, or whatever he said, and shoots himself. Mm-hmm. I thought that was tragically an awful, awful ending for that character. Mm-hmm. Very trite. Very trite. And so the plan starring Cavill just uh, exacerbates that that just really awful way to dispose of the character at the end of the series. Mm-hmm. The other thing I did like, though, there was a question that I had uh, coming out of the series that was not answered, that finally got answered in the plan, and that was Shelley Godfrey. Yeah, that was a big question of mine, too. Back in the season one episode, the six in Baltar's head goes missing, won't talk to him, and then a six model shows up in the flesh in real life, interacting with the crew and accusing Baltar of being responsible for for the destruction of colonies. We're led to believe at the end of that episode that somehow Head Six pulled this off. Well, that was still when the Head Six was actually a Cylon at that point, with the, before right. they had changed this the nature of what she was in the middle of season two, and it's a really bald face change. That was one of my issues with the inconsistency of that character. You know, She was always surprised about things up until the end of season two, and then she stopped being surprised about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made no sense whatsoever. Like when they go and see Gina on the Pegasus, she is shocked. She is absolutely shocked. And then, and then once downloaded happens and they decide on the nature of what she is, that completely changes. Yeah, the fact that they answer that question, though, makes the movie worth it for me because that, that was uh, one of the biggest outstanding questions that I had. I was always driven nuts by, it's about time, I wondered when you were going to get here in the pilot. You know, Eddie and, and the team who did this, they took their time. They sat down, they watched the series, and it all, it most of it fits. There's only one glaring issue that I had with that, with all that, um, that clippage that happened, and everything else is, is fantastic. When uh, Adam is giving his speech about the attack on the colonies, Lee is in his uh, Mark 7 or Mark 6 listening to him. At that time, Lee was with the Colonial One. Mm, okay. I'll take your word for it. It's well done. I'm glad they did it. I'm glad that they uh, filled in some of those pieces because the show failed at filling in all the pieces. And uh, it makes the series a little bit more fulfilling in the end. Yeah, it is. It is uh, a bit more satisfying in that respect. But I'm one of those guys who does not think that Battlestar Galactica walks on water. I think it's a it's a good show that had a lot of potential and then squandered it. And 